please remain standing if you are able. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read together beginning at verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be together as your people this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to worship your name, the name that is above every name. Father, we ask that through your Holy Spirit this morning, we would have the opportunity to examine your word, to allow your word to examine us, and in this, we would understand the unity that we have in Christ. For any in the hearing of your word this morning that do not know you, Would you use the words of Scripture and through the power of the Holy Spirit convict, bring sinners to salvation? We thank you and praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's useful to recap our journey through the Ephesian letter and and the things that we have learned so far. We began chapter 1 as Paul laid out the spiritual blessings that belonged to the followers of Christ, those who were the the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus. We saw in the first portion of of this doxology that Paul laid out that the saints have been predestined from eternity past for salvation. We saw that they were elect through his sovereign choosing. We moved from there and, and we understood that they were adopted as sons, placed into to one family. We saw that through his graciousness, there's forgiveness of sins. And we understand that there is now a shared inheritance for those who comprise the church of Jesus Christ. In all these things, we saw that first and foremost, Paul explains those for the purpose of Christ receiving all the glory. We see that in this, the purpose was for the praise of his glorious grace, to put the goodness of God clearly on display. 
Paul moved from that beautiful doxology to a, an intentional prayer where he, he prays for the saints. He asks that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That he would give the church eyes for their hearts, eyes to understand all that is that Christ has accomplished for them and now is desiring to accomplish in them. As we move to, to chapter two, we see Paul's focus change just a bit. He's, he's shifting and he's now moving towards what has Christ has done, not just in the, in the heavenly realm with these lofty, indescribable terms that he uses in the doxology, but he begins to, to break it down in a way that helps the church understand that it is all because of the great love with which the Father loved them, expressed through Christ. It is all because of God's mercy and God's grace, not because of their ethnic heritage, not because of their merits or because of their accomplishments, but all because of Christ's grace. And then as we move into to chapter 11, Paul changes his tone yet again. And to help us understand these verses that we're moving through 11 through 21, today we'll, we'll pick up at 17, but for the purposes of understanding, we, say, we see Paul acting like a spiritual father and addressing the church as though they're his spiritual children in the same way that a loving father addresses his children. And what we see here is Paul is concerned with some bitter sibling rivalry. To give you a hypothetical situation, and before anyone gets uncomfortable, this is hypothetical, but let's just say, for example, that on any given Sunday morning, there's siblings that are bickering. They bicker from the moment they roll out of bed. The bickering takes place in such a way that the father is, is aware and addresses his children with sternness. This continues to go on, and, and let's just say hypothetically that these siblings are, are on their way to church, so their attitude ought to be that of preparing to go to church, right? The children continue to, to escalate, and their words are unkind, and their looks are disdainful, and the father might say something to them on the way to the car, like, give me just one reason I shouldn't stop this car and let you both out, right? And then you arrive at this hypothetical, very hypothetical church parking lot, right? And the two children are taken out of the car and the father looks at both of them and he directs his attention to one more than the other. And the conversation that he says is, you're culpable. And he says that you, I've been merciful with you and I expect your conduct towards your sibling to be different. But this whole time, he's saying this right in front of the other sibling for the purpose of addressing them both. He could then turn and say the same thing to the other child. And that's what we see Paul doing here. Paul's addressing these two distinct siblings, if you will, in the church of Christ. We've got those who are Jews, those who claim to be children of Abraham, and we've got the Gentiles, the nations. And so we see that, that Paul in verse 11 is talking to the Gentiles first. You'll recall, he says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision." Remember, called unclean, called far off by what is called the circumcision. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So through all this, Paul's beginning to, to lay out the case that both are in the same predicament. Both siblings, the same problem. He explains from the beginning of this chapter the fact that they're, they're under the covenant of Adam. 
spiritually dead, separated from Christ. But now, because of what Christ has done, and we see this beginning at verse 13, he, he calls out with exuberance, he says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. As we pick up our, our study this week at, at verse 17, I'd intended to get us to chapter 17 last week, but there's so much here that we're going to try again this week. Paul says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Now, the verse that's in view here is Isaiah 57 19, where the prophet Isaiah says, Peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord and I will heal him. So Paul employs the same thing, and he uses the word peace twice, right? A double portion of peace. There's peace for two distinct groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. But the truly remarkable thing about what we see in verse 17 is that that Paul is explaining that this unity, this being brought brought, brought near, is through the advent of the God-man. It's through, through preaching. It says, and he came and preached. Who's he referring to? Okay, we went through the book of James together, and the entire book of James, we found that the name of Christ is only actually called out twice. Paul doesn't leave us with any doubt. This passage, if we just pick up at, at verse 11 and do a quick survey, Christ is clearly in view. He says, you're separated from Christ. Verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, by the blood of Christ, Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, explaining this is Christ that's in view. And he continues to move through, and we get to verse 17, we understand that the he that's in view there is Christ. The message becomes the messenger. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what Paul is pointing out that is so incredible about what has been accomplished through the gospel is that God himself came. And what did he come to do? What was the the primary objective of God coming in human form? To preach, to preach salvation. And he did this to two distinct groups of people. If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. And we'll begin reading at verse 12. It says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region, the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then Matthew says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see that? Christ's earthly ministry begins with preaching. And he finds himself in a region where he's preaching to those who are ethnically not Jews. They're far off. In Mark chapter 1, verse 38, we see Jesus again pointing out that his mission from God the Father was to preach. It says, and he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. Then if you would turn also to Luke chapter 4, 
we see that God incarnate continues the, the preaching ministry and beginning at verse 42, it says, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place and people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So we see that Christ's earthly ministry is one characterized by preaching. Christ, from eternity past, has been both the message and the messenger. We see all of the, the faithful prophets and we see preaching throughout the story of redemptive history, but ultimately it culminates in the fullness of time. God himself comes, dwells among us, and delivers this message, a message of peace to Gentiles and to Jews. This is, this is incredible the fact that God chooses to humble himself, to dwell among us and deliver us a message of salvation. But if we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 17, we see something else remarkable. We see that Paul expresses that by saying, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. So Paul's not just talking about Jews and Gentiles in a general sense. He's actually talking about a very specific group of people. He's talking about you. Well, who's you? If we go back to the beginning of the letter here, we see that it's written to the saints who are in Ephesus. This seems a little bit confusing. We understand that God did send faithful preachers to Ephesus. We know that Priscilla was there along with his wife Aquila. We know that Timothy was a preacher that God sent to Ephesus. And we will certainly know that Paul preached in Ephesus. But the way Paul expresses it is as though Jesus himself had visited Ephesus. That he himself had declared this message to them, to the Jews and to the Gentiles that were in Ephesus. And this is important for us to understand because what we see is that from Christ's advent and all throughout his, the, the message of, of historical redemption, Christ has, has used mankind to propagate that message of salvation. And we see that clearly in what Paul is saying here in Ephesus. We understand that Paul is making the statement through this that, that Christ is preaching and Christ is sending preachers so that the message goes out. Paul says in Galatians 1, chapter 11, he says, For I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Paul's not making this up. Paul is not bringing anything original to the church of Ephesus. What Paul is bringing to the church in Ephesus is the revelation of Jesus Christ, that the God-man came in human form, and that, that after his, his death and resurrection and ascension, Christ called Paul on that Damascus road, and he commissioned him with a message. You'll see in, in greater depth next week that in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul makes it clear, he says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was, by, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's why, church, we see a pattern in this verse. We see that, that Christ himself came with the message of salvation, and he's given that message to others to faithfully preach. 
Before moving on from here, I want to say that there's a practical application for us. There's a great little book. I'm not selling books. Last week, we plugged the library. This week, I'll plug the bookstore. There's a great little book. It's pretty small for those of you who don't like to read big books. It's called Praying for Sunday. And it's an incredible book that talks about the role of every single believer in this church praying for the preaching of God's word. And so I would encourage you that there should be praying happening for the preparation of preaching, for the delivery of preaching, and for the response to the preaching. That's why this is central to the gospel. Christ demonstrates that. Paul demonstrates that. And until he comes again, that's what the church is called to do. Amen? Going back to, to this verse, chapter 17, what is the message that's being, that's being preached? We're talking about peace. Peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. And that's the good news. Those who are given the opportunity to preach gospel, the words of the prophet Isaiah are attributed to them. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, bring news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The good news of the gospel. But verse 18 reminds us that the good news of the gospel is insufficient without preaching the bad news of the gospel. You see, verse 18, Paul says, to both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, for through, for through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now this word access, we could gloss over it really quickly, but we can't because we need to understand that without the gospel, our access to God is completely impossible. We talked last week that the temple language is in use here. We see different aspects that, that Paul is wanting us to understand what Christ has done through understanding the temple. Some of you have, may have watched the video link that Anne sent out this week, just a, a short video clip about the, the temple. And one of the things that was explained in that video is that the temple is a representation of what God had initially established in the Garden of Eden. Because of man's sin and willful disobedience of God, their high-handed defiance of God. They were expelled from Eden. The word of God says that the cherubim were placed over the east entrance of Eden and something like a flaming sword that would, under the penalty of death, prohibit anyone else to go back into that place where God's presence resided. No access. Do we understand how horrible this is? This is to be separated from God eternally. This is what we define as hell. Eternal separation from God. But now it says that God has given us access. And we think he gave us access because he himself is our peace, right? But peace came at the expense of horrible violence. If we look back at verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two and so making peace. And look at the words Paul uses here. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Through the cross. Is there anything more violent than the cross? 
killed by cruel Gentile means, by loud, boisterous Jewish demand. He was killed in the most painful, agonizing way. And so by his blood, Paul says, killing the hostility between us. Isn't that remarkable to see words like killing and hostility and blood and cross juxtaposed next to peace? But we have to see all of that to understand what God has given us through Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you don't understand that there's animosity and separation between you and God in your natural state, that you were born dead in sin, understand this. The only way to be restored to Jesus Christ is by understanding and accepting that he died on the cross for your sins. Only by his blood has there been made a restoration that you can have contact with God. The idea of access, again, brings temple speak into mind. We see that the, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down between, because of what Jesus did. The Gentiles have the ability to draw near. We talked about that wall around the outer court of Herod's temple. There were signs that said, foreigners, not allowed. Anyone who's not of the tribe of Israel, death. But thanks be to God, Paul explains, listen, now you Gentiles, you guys can get just a little bit closer, right? But here's the problem. Nobody's close enough. Right? The Jews still had a fundamental problem with access to God, and that's explained by what we see in a closer look at the temple. Okay? So Exodus chapter 26, if you would turn there with me, I'll only mention to you that uh, the cherubim are again visible. In Exodus chapter 24, we see God giving a design for the Ark of the Covenant. Atop the Ark of the Covenant, they're supposed to make two cherubim out of hammered gold. And these look upon the throne, the mercy seat that's set on that Ark of the Covenant. That's holy. That represents, in a symbolic sense, the presence of God. But in Exodus chapter 26, symbolically, there's yet to be another barrier preventing access to a holy God. Verse 17, it says, You shall. Sorry, uh, chapter 26, verse 31. It says, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate you from the holy, the holy place from the most holy and you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. You see, God sets apart this, this portion of the temple. He puts it behind a, a veil with these cherubim, which would have symbolized what God did in Eden. You can't go back into my presence. You are unholy. We know that the high priest was only allowed in certain provisions to, to go into that holy place. But we understand that the God-man the word made flesh, would come and not only preach, but he would put his preaching into action in the most incredible, supernatural, transformative, illustrative way. We see at the crucifixion of Christ, when he gave his, his life on the cross, supernaturally, Matthew chapter 27, verse 51 says, at the moment that he died, behold, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Supernatural terrifying. The, the holiness of God 
now revealed. The curtain falls to the ground. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20 explain to us just how incredible this is. What God has done through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, now there is access to the holy place. The author of Hebrews says, we have this sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the holy place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as forerunner on our behalf, having become a great priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, there's our access. The outer wall, the hostility wall broken down. The inner veil now gives us access to the holy of holies, to the presence of God. And Paul begins to, to use this to shape our understanding that God is no longer talking to us about a physical temple. God is no longer talking to us about a specific geography where his presence is manifested. And as we'll see in the verses ahead, now his temple is something different. It's spiritual. It's us. Before I move on from, from this point, I want to make a, an application. This week I had the opportunity to go to Balboa Park. Having been back in San Diego for four years, I recognized that I never go to Balboa Park. It's a beautiful place. People come from all over the world to go to Balboa Park. There's a whole bunch of museums there, and some of those museums I've actually had annual passes for, and I don't think I ever go. <laughs> and, and that occurred to me as a, as a reminder. Think of the access that we have to a holy God through Jesus Christ. Do we take advantage of that privilege? Do we go to the Lord boldly in prayer? Do we go before him with our petitions? And more than that, church, do we understand that the, the access that we have has made us one? And do we seek out the fellowship that we have in one another? Do we look for each other midweek? Do we desire to take full advantage of that which Christ alone has afforded us? Now, from there, we, along with Paul, are going to make a little bit of a transition, okay? So now what we see in verse 19, is Paul uses some words that help us understand we're about to make a, a switch in how we're thinking. He says, so then, based on everything we just saw before that, we see that we were dead in sin. We see that because of his mercy and grace, we've been made alive. We see that through his sacrifice, we've been made one. So now that we understand all that, what do we do with it? We're now going to shift into practical theology. And Paul wants us to make this so crystal clear that he gives us three different analogies to explain the same thing. So as we watch, we're going to see that Paul explains things in, in a political sense. We've been made one. He's going to explain it in a, in a familial sense, right? We've been made one. And then he explains it in a spiritual sense. He says, and we've been made one. We get that? We see that there? There's a pattern? He's made us one. So watch how he explains this. And consider, through the aiding of the Holy Spirit, how this affects us as a local body of believers. Verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Aliens and strangers. People who, who are from one country and live in another People who don't belong, now given a shared sense of belonging. And for Paul, using a term like citizen must have been a very loaded term. 
We know that Paul was an Israelite, but we also know that he was a, he was a citizen of Rome, right? With that came benefits. With that came responsibilities. With that came a sense of identity. But one of the unique ways that God chose to use that Roman citizenship is that Paul could travel near and far. Unlike other times prior in history, Paul could travel from one place to another. And he did that in obedience to the Holy Spirit. But what we see is that at various times as Paul moved as a sojourner throughout the Roman Empire, his heart was one place and he wanted to be in a different place than God had planted him. He says, I wanted to go to be with you. He talks about, I had desire to, to go to Spain and to go to Rome and to go all these places, but God had me here. That, that citizenship that Paul talks about helps us understand that his identity and where God had him were sometimes at odds with one another. Now, I, I think about this, and some of you in our, in our congregation have lived before as, as expats, citizens of one country that have lived in another. Others of you actually are expats. You're from someplace else and living here. What I see in all of this is that that citizenship for those of us and those of you who have done expat living creates in us a sense of longing. Recently talked, there's sometimes a a product that you miss from back home. There's a, a taste or a smell or something from back home that you really miss. But more than that, there's often a relationship from back home that you miss, right? And Paul describes that beautifully in what he says in Philippians Chapter 3, 20 through 21, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. He says, and, we, and from it, we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I would tell you that the citizenship has one of its characteristics for a citizen living somewhere else. There's a sense of longing. There's a sense of, this isn't my home. And more than that, there ought to be a desire for our Savior who comes from there, our citizenship in heaven. Some of us during our our pilgrimage grow weary and we miss what is our home. So for, for senior saints, for sick saints, for weary saints, our hope is in Christ. We await our Savior from there. The ticket's already bought. And we're bound for glory. We wait for our Savior from heaven. Not only is, is longing part of being a, a citizen that lives overseas, being an expat, but there's also the concept of belonging, which is what Paul wants us to understand here. Having lived overseas, it's really exciting. It makes something well up inside you when you run into somebody who's from back home. Right? And don't we experience that? We'll be out doing our, our shopping interacting with somebody, and we'll pick up, this is a brother. This is a sister. And you're like, hey, are you from heaven too? Isn't that neat? Isn't that neat? We have a a shared citizenship. And that's exactly what what Paul is calling into view here. You're no longer strangers and aliens. Y'all are from the same country. And from it, we await a savior. Paul goes on in that same verse 19. He kind of switches metaphors on us, right? He says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens, longing and belonging. And then he says, you're members 
of the household of God. This takes us back to sibling rivalry, right? There's no place for ugly sibling rivalry in the church of Jesus Christ. We are part of one household. And Paul uses this terminology because the household communicates a warmth and an intimacy and being part of the same family unit. We live in a fallen world characterized by dysfunction. But the word of God helps us understand what what families ought to look like. And the household of God is made up of individual households. And God purposely, through Paul, uses the word household in a lot of different ways. I'm just going to give you two, because that's not our, our sole focus. But one thing is, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see that one of the qualifications for an overseer of God's church is that he manages his own household well. And Paul goes so far as to say to Timothy, for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household well, how is he going to manage the household of God? In Galatians chapter 6, there's a, an exhortation to do good works. And Paul says, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. This benevolence, this service, this generosity has to be seen first in the household of God. We're now part of that household. In the book of Hebrews, it's uh, made clear that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, right? This is an incredible thing. As we have a shared inheritance, we are being knit into the same family, the same household, and our conduct ought to reflect that. The warmth of being adopted siblings, of being brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 20, Paul begins to to shift the analogy again. We've seen the political sense, right? He's using politics and citizenship to help us understand unity. Then he switches to family, the household, and now he's going to switch to something spiritual. And again, now he's going to help us understand that that temple thing he's talking about, it doesn't look like the temple of Diana that the pagans have. It doesn't look like the temple that was in Jerusalem. It looks like something totally different than that. In fact, you can't even see it. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we're seeing something here that's a, it's a foundation. It's being built up. Paul uses some terminology here that requires a little bit of unpacking. I suspect our, our brother will help us understand this a little bit more next week. I'm just going to mention this briefly. But Paul says, the apostles and the prophets. You would expect that if our brother here was talking about the Old Testament prophets, that he would have said that in a different order, right? The prophets and the apostles. That he'd be talking about prophets like Isaiah and like Jeremiah and and like Ezekiel that are pointing to Christ, but instead he's looking to New Testament prophets and apostles. Those who are the messengers of the gospel have been given by Christ, the message of the gospel, that their message would be joined together. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The substance of the message of these apostles and the prophets is Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone. The word cornerstone is one that we realize Paul is now shifting his attention back from the Gentiles just a bit to the Jews. He's using a buzzword 
right? You can say a certain word and it'll grab somebody's attention. You know it's kind of a, a hot button for them. Well, cornerstone would probably have been one of those words. How do we know that? Well, Jesus uses it in a, in a parable that we've looked at together in recent weeks, but let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 21. If you would turn to that portion of scripture, please. We see the, the parable of the tenants. Beginning at, at verse 33, to understand context, Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit grew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one another, killed one another, and stoned one another. And stoned another, sorry. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Check out verses 45 and 46. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Pretty perceptive, huh? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. You see, Jesus takes this idea that, that David mentions in Psalm 118. The stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. And he takes the words of Isaiah and he explains that he is that cornerstone, rejected by the people of Abraham. And now, given over to those who will give him the fruits in their season. And that doesn't mean that now the message is no longer for Israel and now it's for the Gentiles. Now it's for a new people, the people that are going to bring forth fruit. In the passage that Rob read for us, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Peter explains the same thing. Himself a Jew, with his ministry to the Jews, says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, when we think of a cornerstone, I want us to have a, a, perhaps a different mental picture than what we have in mind. We understand that this stone was discarded, set aside by man, but by God, chosen and precious. In the case of the, the temple at Jerusalem, the cornerstone was massive and immovable. It's not that little name card that's on the side of the building that says this was built in 1976, right? No, it's an immovable stone, massive. And once that stone is set, the other stones build out from each corner with that stone being the, the stone, the standard by which 
all of the other stones are placed. Christ Jesus is that immovable cornerstone, chosen and precious. That's why our, our, our understanding is that our church is built on that immovable stone, Jesus Christ. Verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul begins to help us understand visually what's happening with the structure. He says, In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. On the immovable foundation of Jesus Christ, we're being built up, we're being shaped into a place where ultimately God's Spirit will dwell. Not in an ark, in a box, not behind a curtain, not in a faraway city. But spiritually, eternally, globally, God will live in his people. And his people in him. This idea of unity is is so hard to explain that Paul has to use three different analogies just to have us even remotely on track with what he's trying to explain to us. The whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So if we now understand that we're that temple... What kind of practical implications does that have? Well, there are many. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, starting at verse 10, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will be, become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and that fire will test what sort of work each has done. If, that, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So an implication there, Paul's building it as a master builder, but he's building on nothing other than Jesus Christ. And and he says, hey, if something's not right in, in gospel ministry and your intentions aren't right, if you deviate from the message, you know what? It'll be burned up. The worker himself will be saved, but that work improperly done, removed. More than that, The practical implication we begin to understand a bit better in verses 16 and 17 of the same passage. Paul asks a rhetorical question. Don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. I grew up uh, in a church where we had a well-intentioned youth group leader who would use this verse as a biblical basis for why we should not smoke cigarettes. He told us that our body was a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is true, and that if we were to smoke, we would be doing damage to what is God's temple. But this interpretation fails to understand that what Paul is telling us here is using a you plural. You all are God's temple, and God's spirit dwells in you. And, you know, that would put enough fear in us maybe that we we wouldn't touch a cigarette, right? Right? But I tell you what, this interpretation is a lot scarier because you know what it says? It says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. 
This is a bold admonition against anything that causes division in the church. If there is any division in the church, what does it say? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Church, that ought to make us check our hearts, right? Do you want to be responsible for inflicting damage on this eternal, precious, blood-bought structure that he's building up? I don't. That ought to give us fear and understanding that we together are being built up in the place that he dwells. Tread with care. Verse 22 of our text this morning tells us that in him you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're being built together. The same text that we looked at, Rob read for us, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 says, You yourselves are living stones being built up into a spiritual house, hand-selected. God chooses each of these stones and he lines them up next to the, the foundation of Jesus Christ and he stacks them one on top of another with each with a particular purpose. So that means that as we understand this unity that we have, we have to understand that God picks the stones that ultimately get stacked alongside us and stacked upon us as he builds. Sinclair Ferguson makes a rather convicting quote. I share this with you. He says, Christ builds from living stones. Sinners who are resistant material, difficult to shape, reluctant to fit together with other stones, yet Christ continues to build. Don't we love to church, come to church and hear about us? We're described as a dense material that needs a lot of chiseling because we refuse to fit where God wants us to be. Isn't that encouraging? The encouraging part, church, is that Christ loves us enough to do that. He loves us enough to, to shape us together and build us up in love. And he's doing that to build for himself a dwelling place. A dwelling place built for God by the Spirit. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, gives us a, a good understanding of ultimately what Paul needs us to, to comprehend about why God is doing this. Does he love us? Does he want us to have peace with him? Does he want us to have reconciliation with him? Yes. Does he desire to show us mercy and to show us grace? Yes. But ultimately, church, why does he do that? For his own glory. He's, he's a jealous for his own glory. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 through 6. We see, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of, house, builder of the house has honor for the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope." You see that? It's, it's the builder of the house that receives the glory. I was thinking a little bit about Genesis chapter 11. We see the Babel account. We see a group of men coming together and they start building bricks and they say, you know what? Let us build a name for ourselves. Let's build a, a tower to heaven. 
See what we can accomplish. What did God do to that? He sent them packing. He confused their languages. He stopped their work. But now what we see through the gospel is that God is bringing those people from different languages, from different geographies, and he's bringing something back together. And you know what he's building? He's building something so that his name will be glorified. Every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And we get to be a part of that, what God is building up. If God is building it up, then no one tear it asunder. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we recognize in our sinfulness that we are utterly dependent upon you. We would have no access to you. We would continue to be expelled from your presence. But thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming, for humbling yourself and dying a a cruel death on a cross so that we might have access to the Father through you. Thank you, Lord God, that you are also mercifully choosing to use us as living stones to be a part of your eternal kingdom. We pray, Lord God, that you would continue to work in our church, work in our hearts, protect us from any sibling rivalry, protect us from any division, Lord God. We desire to be your holy temple. We desire to be holy. We desire to have your presence among us. Search our hearts, Lord God. Allow us to to correct anything that causes division or causes disunity, that you might be glorified, that your name might be preached, and that your church might grow. Thank you and praise you for your word. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.